Welcome, our world listeners. I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking to Medal of Honor recipient Sal Junta about his actions in the Korangal Valley in 2007. We'll talk to him about how he handled leadership on his worst day and what he did to prepare himself for a situation like the one he encountered in the Korangal Valley. As always, the views in this podcast are those of the respective participants and do not constitute the position of the United States government. Also want to take a second to give a shout out to Dead Prussian Podcast. If you're looking for other podcasts to listen to when you can't listen to the Modern War Institute podcast, we recommend the Dead Prussian Podcast. They have great episodes talking about history, Clausewitz, and war, so make sure you check that out. Sergeant Juju, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Um, I'm interested in trying to get a little bit of just the general background of, of what your unit was doing in Afghanistan in 2007. In, in 2007, the 173rd uh, deployed to the Kunar Providence, and the uh, battle company was in the Korngal Valley, about a six-kilometer by six-kilometer valley. Our goals for the year were to interact with the general populace, win hearts and minds, uh, dig wells if we're able to build a road through the Korngal Valley coming off the Pesh River Valley. Um, this entire valley was uh, one river went through on the north side and there was no road there other than a dirt road which was heavily heavily IED'd and it would be to clean up the road and win favor of the people. Let them know we're not there to command or conquer or control and we don't want their land. We want to assist them in establishing a government and a, a stable way of life. So the operation that you ended up receiving the Medal of Honor for was called Rock Avalanche, and it happened in October of 2007. Can you talk me through what the intent of that mission was? Rock Avalanche, th- throughout the this 15-month deployment, uh, I want to say Rock Avalanche happened probably around month uh, six or seven that we were there, and uh, we've been getting a lot of harassing fire. There's only so many people in this valley and we're getting shot at every day. And we then we see everyone in the valley. So the people that we see when we're not looking at them are shooting at us. And the idea of Rock Avalanche was to go in and interdict these folks in other places when they weren't expecting us to be where we were uh, and to engage other people. Maybe they were going to be friendly to us. Uh, they weren't. Uh, but the idea was to bring in, it was an entire battalion size mission, but then battle companies was the, the Korngal Valley. I believe Abel Company had the Shuriak. Uh, Everything else was kind of outside of, of my scope um, for the deployment. Um, but when we went out, we went in and we, we infiltrated through through air assault and different places that we'd never been to further south in the Korngal Valley. Um, while we were there, we took a whole bunch of fire from a whole bunch of places we were never taking fire before from, which means those people also dislike us. And maybe those people were the ones moving in closer to us and hitting us um, in, our, in our fire bases and, and patrol bases. Um, that first day that we went out, we we kind of stepped into a hornet's nest. We definitely rattled it. And even with the false infiltrations, the enemy had most of our locations pretty pinned down. Um, we took a lot of harassing fire. We also saw um, an enemy element move at the shoot attack and then move into a house. We ended up uh, dropping some bombs on the house and some uh, uh, mortar rounds and artillery rounds and out of that uh, actually came they, they pulled out women and children out of the house uh, because of that situation they we had a, a sure or a meeting with the locals trying to tell them that this was not our intent or that is collateral damage but those weren't the only people in the house 
Um, we had our battalion commander at the time, Colonel Oslin, came out to assure them, this is our this is our highest ranking person in the entire area, and, and we are sorry for this loss. That is not, that's not what we do, uh, but it does happen. And they declared jihad on us. They assured us we would not live to see the end of the valley, which is a bummer, but at least now they're being honest with us. Uh, before they tell us they like us and they chewed us in the back, now they tell us they hate us, and well, at least we knew that. Uh, that was the first day and a half. Actually, one of my one of the crazy memories I don't ever talk about much in that rock avalanche. That first night, we set up two two patrol bases about fifty meters from each other, uh, full three hundred and sixty degree circles, and then guards on all four major points, shifting uh, about thirty three percent security throughout the entire night. And we had an enemy loaded with RPGs walk in between our two patrol bases, so couldn't have been more than twenty five meters at max from either one, or really close to one. And, uh, I mean, they were all over the mountainside, and he was setting up for the next morning going to the high ground, but he didn't know we were had the high ground on him already. Uh, that dude blew up in a ball of flames. Uh, bad guys get bad things. And so uh, the following day, they moved us. They sent in the helicopters, and they moved us up on top of the Abascar. We were a small contingent of only about 18 people. That would be a platoon light. And it was a platoon light because the rest of the platoon was back at our base. We still had... Uh, 240 Bravos, Mark 19, 50 Cal's, and our equipment in our in our little fire base, and someone had to be there to to keep that secure. When we moved to the top of the Abascar, uh, we ended up staying up there for two days. It was a place we went further up the Abascar and further south on the Abascar than we had in the six months prior, and uh, you could see just the true network of highways on top of this mountain. The trees changed before we were in real hardwood holly trees that were maybe uh, 20 feet tall. And on top of the Abascar, it almost looked like these, these, they weren't redwoods, but it looked like redwood-sized trees. They were enormous girth and base and then just went into the sky and it felt awkward. And when you looked at the ground, it wasn't like a footstep had stepped there. It was just a significant hard-packed dirt coming from a whole bunch of dudes running in, in sandals. It was It was a very eerie place. Um, to be. I, I think out of my entire memory in the military, that was probably the eeriest place I've ever been and most disconcerting circumstances around it. Everything felt like it was going to be bad at any second. Uh, we moved around up there to kind of get a feel for the area in 2nd Platoon, which was again, I, I think it was about 15 to 20 people, um, were down below us. Our scout team came under attack on October 24th. This would have been uh, the third and a half, fourth day that we were out. And uh, our scout team carrying bigger weapons, better optics. They are our fastest, our strongest. Um, they stay out longer. They move smaller in smaller groups, and they move quieter than, than we usually do with our 14-man, 18-man groups. Um, our scout team got overran. Their position was compromised on a spur. They had a gun team attachment from uh, 2nd Platoon was with them. And uh, in that in that attack, the scout team leader, Staff Sergeant Larry Rugel, was killed. Uh, the scout team leader is is the leader of the scouts. He really was uh, our, our biggest and our fastest. I mean, the guy's running like 12-minute, 2 miles, and bench pressing 350 pounds, and came from Ranger Bat, and just, just a stud of a guy. On the 24th, that was a huge loss. Uh, 
it was it was one of the more the bigger losses that we sustained just for morale's sake, simply because he was one of our best, and to see him die. I think what comes to mind out of that event was we were one kilometer away, and we had the high ground, but we were further to the north, and we didn't move. And we didn't move because war is not a game of checkers. You don't just get to move across the board, get kinged, and then come back whenever you want. When you leave a place, you left it, and you might have to fight to take it back, and so we couldn't afford to lose our location. In my entire time in the military, that event was one of the hardest to sit through to hear the desperate, the desperation in the voices on the radio and know that we came halfway around the world to this spot to fight bad guys and we could not assassinate our buddies just a kilometer away on the downhill run. On October 24th, we stayed on top of the Abascar that night on the 24th and then we pushed out. Again, we, we moved out. Um, this time it was about a three-hour walk to set into our location of 18 people, and our goal for the fifth—I'm uh, sorry, the 25th of October—was to pull Overwatch for the contingent of Second Platoon, which would be in the village down below, looking, listening, begging, borrowing, stealing whatever information we could get to get our gear back. When the scouts were overran, uh, they took the night vision goggles. They had a 240 Bravo with about 2,000 rounds. They had our night vision goggles, which was probably the biggest, minus, our, minus Sergeant Rugal was the biggest loss simply because uh, up until that point in, in the military, we've always owned that night. And now all of a sudden on October 24th, we lost owning the night because they can now see in the night, which causes us to have to change our, our standard operating procedures. We no longer can use IR beacons to, to highlight our leaders. We can't be so clear to the guys and gals in the sky through night vision goggles and IR lights because the enemy can also see it. So it's interesting that that one little change changed everything. Uh, we sat there from about, we got, we sat into position maybe about four o'clock in the morning before the sun came up and we sat in a 360 degree circle looking, listening, seeing what we could find, watching the mountains. And there was absolutely nothing. It was a very, very quiet day. Um, and the day prior was a quiet day until the scout team got overran uh, with 2nd Platoon down in the village, they, they didn't get any information. The people were not friendly. Uh, they gave us nothing. And uh, we were going to wait till nightfall to move out. Just It is better in the night. They We no longer own the night, but they're only renting it from us for a period of time, and we'll give them that for now. Uh, above us on the mountain, though, maybe about 400 to 600 meters above us, we had another contingent of, I think, about 12 to 15 folks um, that were going to be our, our security. So no one was going to take the high ground on 2nd Platoon in the village because we were there. No one was going to take the high ground on us because 3rd Platoon was there. And so at nightfall, we were all going to start moving out, move back to the Corngall Outpost, which was about a two, two-and-a-half-hour walk back. The area that we set up on for this overwatch, though, uh, it was very harsh training. It was on the spur, and we couldn't the way we walked in, we had to walk back out the same way we walked in, and that's not good business practice. We like to always be erratic or seem erratic, I guess, and not set patterns, and we didn't know we had to walk out the way we walked in. We found out when we had to walk out. Uh, we walked out maybe about 300 meters. We had uh, we walked in a single file line 10 to 15 meters between people. We are professionals and in, in what we do and we know how to move and so no one grenade or one RPG was going to best a group of us. It was going to be one for one fight. 
and we walked that 300 meters and it was like the world exploded on us. I don't, I'd maybe been in 150 gunfights prior to that day and I'd never seen one so intense and so close. Uh, the enemy hit us in an ambush from about 30 meters away from about 15 different fighting positions. They had cover, they had concealment, and they had the benefit of elevation on us. We were walking the military ridge, so just below the actual ridge, so it afforded them the opportunity to take the high ground. We had no cover, no concealment, and we were surprised. My first response was to my guys. I had two guys there with me that night under my charge, Casey, Claire, uh, Casey and Clary, and uh, Caleb Casey was my was my saw gunner M two four nine. It's weapon shoots about a thousand rounds per minute. And when the shooting started, I dropped down to the ground, no cover, no concealment, just be as small and as low as you can. And when I looked back to instruct my guys, I saw Casey standing there shooting at a cyclic rate of fire, about a thousand rounds per minute coming out of the saw. Never took a knee, never did anything, just returned fire. Uh, because of that, we were Casey became the target. Uh, they stopped shooting at all of us. They started shooting at the guy blowing fire out of his gun, maybe three feet of flames coming out. Next to him was Clary. Uh, Garrett Clary was carrying the 203. It shoots a 40-millimeter grenade, and Clary's lobbing 203s. I, I watched these two guys that I'm supposed to tell what to do already do exactly what I would tell them to do. I think that is that's true professionalism. Uh, because they were doing the right thing and I didn't need to instruct them, it afforded me the opportunity to do the next thing. And when I looked towards my squad leader, Staff Sergeant Gallardo, uh, to do the next thing, I saw Gallardo's head kind of snap and his body drop to the ground. And I was overwhelmed. I was with every emotion, sadness and anger and fear and loneliness and hopelessness. Uh, I had not experienced that type of incidents ever, and I certainly had not experienced any of these other close proximity to the enemy in this this much of an attack. Uh, I didn't know what to do, and so all I could think of was I just grab Gallardo's body and drag him back so he doesn't get shot anymore. I moved forward towards the north. This entire time, the enemy ambush line was to the west. And when I got to Gallardo, when I was running up to Gallardo, I got shot in the chest uh, between my chest and my stomach on my right side. But when that happened, it kind of gave me the knowledge that there's people also to the north. Not only were we getting really hit hard from intensive fire thousands of rounds from 30 meters away, uh, but we were taking fire from the north. Uh, we should have had two other Americans up there, and I shouldn't have got shot from that direction, but I did. I just grabbed, I still, no harm, no foul. It hit my plate and I no time to stop doing anything. And so I grabbed a hold of Gallardo's vest and dragged his body back to, to the area where kind of where Casey and Clary were to, with the hopes to set up, you know, a casualty collection point or, or, or something like that there. And as I was dropping Gallardo's body off, his body started shaking and he came to. The bullet hit his helmet, didn't go through knocked him out, and the very first words out of his mouth were throw grenades. Uh, that's it. That's a leader. Uh, you know, I, I've been knocked out a ton of times, and every time I wake up, I say something dumb like, what happened? Well, you're laying on the ground. You got five people standing over you. You got knocked out, bud. 
he got knocked out by a bullet, and the very first thing that he says is throw grenades. It was never about him. It was always about us. I had three grenades on me. It kind of snapped me out of that that pause that I was in, and I threw my grenades to the west one at a time as I ran. I threw it pretty much as hard as I could. I'm 30 meters, and the blast radius on a grenade gets pretty close to that, so it's probably a little better that I throw it behind them than in between us. Um, as we moved and as I threw my third grenade I came up on Eckrode. Eckrode was on the ground. He was shot twice in the leg and twice in the chest. He also carried that M249 saw the gun that shoots about a thousand rounds per minute and so my thought was I'll, I'll grab Eckrode's gun and before I could do that Gallardo was already there and Gallardo was grabbing Eckrode's gun and to know that he was there doing that uh it allowed me to do something different. I think that is leading by example. Gallardo was there, which made everything there already done and okay, and I could trust everything he was going to do, if not better than what I could do. Uh, so I continued to move to the north. I had no more grenades for cover, but I continued to move. And there's only one other soldier that was up there, and it was Sergeant Brennan who'd been walking point. Uh, I couldn't find him. I could not find him anywhere up there. And I, this whole time... I was running around in the darkness. This is only maybe a minute, a minute and a half a time. Uh, life is pretty short at 30 meters and everyone gets a machine gun. Uh, and I searched for him and I couldn't find him. Ultimately, the, the book says, uh, charged in a near ambush situation, you charge the ambush line. You shoot them, they shoot you. Last man standing gets to declare he's on the winning team. And... So I figured he charged the ambush line, and all I was going to do is not let him down and, and come in after him. I moved forward. I, I went forward maybe 25, 30 meters. So at this point, the entire enemy ambush line was directly to my left, but further further to the south than I was. And most, if not all, their fire was concentrated on Gallardo and Eckrode and Casey and Clary. As I kept on running through it, in October 25th, 2007, in the Corngall Valley, it was a pretty much full moon, if not full moon. And in a valley with no electricity and no other light, the full moon is incredibly bright. We use tracers, uh, one one tracer, one glowing bullet. Ours glow orange, theirs glow green, and then four that don't glow. So we get an idea of where we're shooting. And in, in this entire time, I could see where all the shooting was coming from, and I wasn't shooting, so no one really knew. The enemy did not know where I was or where I was moving because I wasn't shooting. Um, and I came up on two people carrying one person by the arms and by the feet, crossing over kind of the, the crest or the ridge of of that that spur and going down the backside, and I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't understand who it was or why they were going the wrong way. And as I got closer, I realized it was two enemy combatants carrying Sergeant Brennan. And so I engaged the enemy. I eliminated one and uh, shot the other as many times as I could. I grabbed a hold. They dropped Brennan. and well, they, they did drop Brennan, and, and one was running away. The other one was dropped on the spot. Uh, I grabbed a hold of Brennan, and I just took off running back the direction I came. Like I said, I was... If the enemy turned to the left, I was there, and they would shoot me. And if our guys missed to the right, I would get shot. It was a very awkward no-man's-land place there in the middle. And so I pulled Brennan's body back to the to the line of where I would have been, where I was looking for him originally. Uh, in this time, the enemy ambush line 
started to break down and retreat down the backside of the mountain. Uh, the entire time of this ambush, uh, we had two Apache attack helicopters that were going to walk us out of this area in, in the cover of darkness and just provide us a little more security, a little more firepower. But because we were hit at such close proximity, um, the two Apaches couldn't engage because we were no longer identifying ourselves. We weren't uh, in, in the close proximity. If they opened up, they, they could hit any of us, and so they were restraining. Uh, as the enemy retreated down the backside of the mountain, though, they created that space between us and them, and the Apaches went to work on them. As far as I know, no enemy uh, survived that ambush line. As I was working on Brennan, uh, I've called for a medic three times in my life, and two times the medic has always been there. When I'm in true desperate need, they have always come through gunfire and explosion, and they're there. And uh, this night, no medic came right away. Uh, what I didn't know is that our medic, uh, Specialist Hugo Mendoza, was shot through the femoral artery in the first couple seconds of the ambush. After I don't know. It seemed like a lifetime. Things start getting my time. My understanding of time has now been so skewed uh, because of everything that was happening. Now everything was moving in slow motion and taking forever, or everything was happening in a split second. I couldn't judge the time. Uh, a medic showed up, and it was a man named Staff Sergeant Brothers. And. Uh, Brothers volunteered for this mission. Uh, our, our survivability rate drastically increases the best care we get on the spot in place. And he volunteered for this mission. And this entire time, he was with that group up above the up above us, you know, 300, 600 meters above us. And uh, when the initial ambush started, uh, himself and a few others, a small contingent, came running down into the ambush to assist and aid anything that we were going to need. Um, I, I look back on it, it's... That's incredible. Uh, they ran into a situation of thousands of bullets being shot at them, not for themselves, but for us. When Brothers made it to me, he, he helped me with Brennan and gave him a tracheotomy there on the side of the mountain. At this point, we were loading up the, the wounded and the killed. No one fully knew what had transpired in that ambush. We only knew our own little small portion that we were involved in. There was only 18 of us, but five people away was further than anyone was going to travel under that sort of uh, fire. The last one to go up was, was Brennan in the, in the basket to the Blackhawk. And we took the, the ammo and the different plates. I think out of 18 of us, 16 of us were shot somewhere, but the, the body armor helped a lot of us not, not be injured. Um, they're bullet resistant. I wouldn't call them bulletproof, but they're definitely good for one, maybe two shots. But past that, I wouldn't trust them. And we were all shot somewhere. All of a sudden, when Brennan left, uh, you could just feel that weight, uh, the burden of the loss of the teammates. Uh, we really are only as strong as the people we bring to the fight and all of a sudden we lost people in the fight to not be replaced and we had to do the same thing with less people which means everyone does more and we started walking back it took us about two two and a half hours to walk back and when we returned we returned to the the Korngal outpost um, because it was a company-sized mission we had 
first platoon, second platoon, and third platoon were all together, so we went back to the main location. Um, there we were told that Specialist Mendoza had died in the ambush. We were told that Specialist, or Sergeant Brennan was died in surgery. Uh, Sergeant Valles was shot in the kneecap, and he wouldn't come back to us. Eckerode was in surgery, and he was going to be just fine. Uh, Reyes got shot in the helmet as well, but his went through his helmet, nicked his skull, and then out, and he was going to be fine. He'd be back to us as well soon enough. That was really the night of October 25th. On October 26th, we did After Action Review, AAR. Uh, I've always found it to be just another step in the process, and, and but it's about learning. What did we do? What did they do? Were we bad? Were they great? How could this, how could we change this if this situation happened in the future? What is there to learn from it? And through, through writing those sworn statements and, and trying to teach the next group or teach ourselves on how we could be better the next time, um, a lot of stories came out about that entire maybe two-minute time frame. Uh, the following day, it was back to work. The 25th was just the 25th of October, a bad day in combat. It's just a bad day uh, at work, and there's still more things to do, and no one else was going to do them if we didn't do them. So uh, we picked up right where we left off and continued on. So you guys, as you stated, had been in lots and lots of firefights over the course of the six or seven months that you'd been in Afghanistan. What was so different about this one? Was it just the proximity? Was it volume of fire? What was what made this one stand out? I think uh, what made this one stand out for sure, I'd been in Afghanistan uh, two years prior for a year. Uh, I got shot in my leg in July uh, 10, 2004. Uh, I'd been shot. I'd been shot at. But we'd sh- returned fire. We had eliminated enemy. What made this one so different was their, their boldness. It wasn't just harassing fire. It wasn't just sniper fire. It was an all-out, we're going to surprise you and we're going to crush you type of mentality. The volume of fire was incredible. Uh, PKMs, uh, RPGs, uh, AK-47s. You know, when they start tossing down bipods and, and shooting belted ammo at you it's going to be you're in for a fight it was it was something i'd never experienced with the volume of fire ever and then to put them only 30 meters away i'd never experienced that sort of close encounter in such a rural area we weren't fighting city streets with walls and doors and buildings all over we were mostly open terrain on on plateau if not a ridge on a spur coming down the side of a mountain with two Apaches that they can definitely see and definitely hear directly above them. Uh, when we did search the bodies, um, they not all of them were Afghani. Uh, we saw Egyptian passports. We saw Pakistani passports. All of a sudden, these people weren't the farmers just shooting at us because we're a target of opportunity. These people came from a long ways away to pick this fight and die there. Uh, that's something we hadn't seen before. At least I had not seen before. Uh, it stands out for those reasons. Um, I think it stands out because I've never, I was so amazed at the caliber of soldiering of those people around me. I knew they were good. I've seen them do amazing things. But when it's that close and that serious and everything, no one decision is better than the other. It's all life or death. It's either good or bad, life or death. And you can make a hundred good decisions, but one bad decision, is that's your last decision. And I watched them all behave 
so professionally and so profoundly and so selflessly. Uh, I know what they had at risk, and they all risked it all over and over and over again. Uh, it's, it, it, that's what stands out to me. That's that's a good segue because you mentioned throughout the the course of talking about the the fight itself, things that you did and things that others did um, that, given the situation you were in, really are extraordinary. And I'm curious what you think allowed the members of of your platoon, yourself and Sergeant Gallardo and everybody else, to do those things under under such difficult circumstances, such a unique firefight. I, I think it it seems like kind of a, a cliche, but it was training. None of us had ever experienced anything like that before, but we've thought about what would happen if this happened. How would we have to react if this happened? I mean, react to a near ambush is something you, you go over in basic training. It's something you go over in training all the time. And the moral of the story is don't get caught in near ambush because it's going to be terrible for everyone. Uh, but then it comes down to the commitment to the people around you. Uh, everyone did, I believe, what they did out of more care for the people on their left and their right than they had for themselves. But by not focusing on themselves as an individual and being so important in life and death, uh, we all we tried to help those around us. And by all of us doing it, all of us were taken care of uh, and taking care of someone else. And by not caring about themselves, we were automatically cared by two other people. Um, I also think it's motivating to see people do things. When I think about when I went forward, I didn't go forward to charge the ambush line. I I chased after my buddy to make sure he wasn't charging the ambush line alone. It wasn't to be a hero. It was to do what had to be done and to to fulfill my end of the bargain of not letting my buddy do it alone. Uh, When you have that that tight-knit bond or that community or that amount of trust and faith and care and compassion for the people you're with, I don't think there's anything you wouldn't do for them, regardless of the cost to yourself. For you personally, you did a lot of things that we would call individual soldier skills in the course of a very short period of time under duress. You engaged the enemy, you threw hand grenades, you did first aid, the sort of the whole gamut of what we consider the big soldier skills. And I'm curious what were you conscious that you were doing those things or was it at a, at a point that you just were so comfortable doing them that, that you didn't have to think about them? I, I think, you know, it, it felt like a long stick sling in training. You know, you want to train, you get a good, you get good training by training how you might be fighting and you can't just train how to be in a gunfight and you can't just train how to treat casually because to get the casually, you're usually in a gunfight prior to that. So these were all trained things. I think, after the initial barrage of, of bullets, all of us kind of prioritized what had to happen. We all knew everything that had to happen, but then we had to prioritize what was important to us and what had to happen first, second, third, fourth, and go down the line from there. And also try to affect change only where you know you can affect change. If it's something that's outside of your lane or outside of your scope of where you were, don't go running back over there and make unnecessary moves when it doesn't benefit the right here, right now. We have to address things in order. But after that initial thought and prioritization of, of, of our obligations, if we were going to survive, it just became second nature. It was just going through the motions of all the things that were happening. I think we're always, life is evolving around us, and by moving our left hand instead of our right hand, it changes everything. 
Um, but in saying that, if you don't think about it, you don't get overwhelmed with a million things you have to do because you're only doing one thing at a time. And it was addressing every circumstance in its most important situation first and moving on from there. And all that, I think, is training. Uh, when I when I look back on it, I've seen stick lanes just like that in a near ambush. I mean, minus the mountains, minus the five days of being hungry and being out and not sleeping and, and minus the, the very real consequences of it. But we train that. that. That's a real training module or, or thing that we have done before. One thing that I want to ask really quickly, because for me personally and, and as a commander, I was big on, on talking about this with my platoon leaders and, and my squad leaders in particular, was the idea of a fair fight. Um, typically, in firefights, you, we as Americans are not in a fair fight with the adversary that we're facing. We have mortars and artillery and aviation and night vision and all, all those things. And I would, I would characterize what you guys were in as a, a fair fight. And I'm curious if there's anything in terms of the mentality of going into a fair fight that you might might highlight as someone who's been involved in in a much fairer fight than Americans typically are involved in. And I can say I don't much like a fair fight, right? We like the three to one ratio, four to one's great. I like when they're running around in, in pajamas and sandals and we're going to bring in A-10s and, and specters on them. But to be in that, I don't think it really changes because all the basic principles are still the same. You can only do what you know to do and the good news is the biggest gunfight to the smallest gunfight all start with firing guns being accurate and you're shooting shoot move communicate and if you can do those in a small situation you can do them in a big situation if you can do them against even in a, even if it wasn't a fair fight there's only so many times you can risk it all until you already put all your cards on the table and it doesn't the next move isn't a risk it's just the same risk that you began 30 seconds ago or a minute ago and there is no risk assessment in it. It's not what if, it's always all or nothing. Um, it's amazing what we can accomplish when our backs are against the wall, when we are forced to either do this or be eliminated. It's incredible what you can do. And everything else, it doesn't matter what caused that situation, but uh, a soldier with their back against the wall is a very, very dangerous soldier. And I think that that's good for us. So you said you get back to back to the Cornwall Outpost, 26, you do your AR, and then it's back to work. And I'm curious how going back to work went. Obviously, you still had seven or eight months left in your deployment. This is, despite being a soldier and needing to go back to work and, and getting the job done, a pretty significant event. And if for no other reason, then your platoon's taking a lot of casualties. I'm curious how... Um, you're a team leader at this point, but how you as a team leader and, and the rest of the leaders in the platoon and the company were able to figure out how to continue going on. I think w one of the things that had happened uh, after our AARs and everything and, and our company commander, uh, Captain Kearney, read all of them. Um, he came up and, and I was pulling guard. And he came up to me and wanted to talk to me. So someone else had to take the gun and I, I stepped outside with him. Well, I stepped away from the other people. We were all always outside. But uh, he told me that he put Gallardo in for the Silver Star. And I remember thinking, you're a wise man, sir. I, I, I honestly, I don't know. That's some, like, true display of, like, hardcore leadership just in practice. And that's awesome. And then he told me that 
he had put me in for the Medal of Honor. And I've never heard such rude or inappropriate words in my entire life. I'm a pretty easygoing dude and words have never, they don't hurt. Those words hurt me very deeply and, and, and personally. And I told him very choice words you should never say to your boss's boss's boss. And I might have ended it with bodily harm or something. We're in combat and I told him I didn't want to hear his mouth anymore. And no one does this for medals. And going back to work is a proof of resiliency. I think that's the American fighting spirit is resilient. It's not about how many times you get knocked down. It's about how many times you get up. And as long as the times you got up is one more than time than you got knocked down, that means you're standing on your feet and you might as well get to get back to work. I think it's also the, the power of the people around you. No one person let that seed of doubt or that poison completely remove them from the fight. And no one said, hey, this is just way too much for me to handle. I got to leave. No one said that. And because no one said that, no one would say that. And all of a sudden, the A-team's still together. And the A-team's still doing it. And then what feels comfortable is just going back to doing what you were doing because it being super busy and super tired and super hungry stop you thinking about the last couple of days that have been super bad. And uh, that that is resiliency. That's what we train. I mean, I'm very small things in training, but they pay off in combat. So last question I have for you, because we're here at West Point, uh, I always ask the people I talk to on this podcast is what advice would you give to cadets or, or junior officers, guys that are going out into the forces as the very lowest level of, of officer? I, I am I am super impressed with our lowest level of officer. Uh, I'm, I'm impressed for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons is because they want to be a leader. To, very rarely does leadership land on your lap. You just keep on being a leader. Whether you want to be a leader or not, you can be a leader without having the position. These are people who want that position, have trained for that position. I think the, the advice that I could, could give to, to uh, a new lieutenant is listen to the experience around you. It is neat that you went to West Point for four years, but when you're at West Point, I was at war. When you're in high school, I was at war. You are, I would never achieve your rank without being commissioned, but I can teach you stuff that when you were learning, I was actually putting into practice. And it's about drawing information, not just from your NCOs. I like seeing the lieutenant talk to the platoon sergeant, but that needs to go further than that. That lieutenant should be talking to privates too because they're at the private level, right? You, I, I'm glad you did a summer camp this one time. I'm going to tell you what I've been doing the last four years or three years. Um, when I see those leaders actually interact with their subordinates, not just in a leadership fashion, but in a true, caring, compassion, saying, I care about you. I care about what you're doing at work, but I care about what you do after work. I care about how you're living, how your family's living, what's your, what's your home life like. And it's not because they're trying to be nosy. It's because they actually care about you as an individual. There's very few jobs in the planet where it's okay to, to ask those questions to your employees. The military is one of them because this is bigger than, than producing, than creating revenue or building jobs or creating something. It's about the future of all of us forever. And that comes with caring for your fellow man. And when you see a lieutenant care and not just put in the, the lip service, but actually care, that's someone you can follow because you know they're not going to steer you wrong because they care. That's powerful. That, that's bigger than words. It doesn't even take any words to do that. It's just your actions. It, it's really neat to see these lieutenants. One of the greatest things is that they have so much room to grow so quickly, and they usually do. They, they achieve more and do more because they got a lot to learn and they learn more. Awesome.
Isn't that neat? <laughs> I get I get fired up about it. Well, great. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, I'm sure the cadets loved your talk here, and thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at mwi.usma.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth discussions on war, policy, and leadership.